Hey everybody, Doug Schaefer. Thanks for checking out a new episode of The Taste. We're doing something a little different today, talking to a friend of mine who is a genuine pioneer with wine, but he's not a winemaker. He's a weatherman, and he's got a story that is full of ups and downs and twists and turns. There's a lot to get into, so let's get started. Welcome back, everybody. It's Doug Schaefer with another episode of The Taste. Uh, today we have a longtime friend, Spencer Christian, who I must say, I knew him before I met him because I'd see him every night doing the, doing the weather on ABC <laughs> TV here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, he's a familiar face, a familiar voice. Then we finally met back in... Uh, I think I was oh. thinking about this, Spencer. Two thousand three, yeah, oh four, exactly right, right when around oh three. And yeah. you were up here with Leslie Leslie Sprocko, Les yeah, who's been on the Taste early on, if, yeah. about a year ago, and uh, we, you guys, were filming a pilot for a food wine show here at Schaefer. We That's did it exactly in the right. late afternoon, early evening. Yeah. It was a fun time. It was a lot of lot of fun, great experience, and what a venue! Oh my gosh, it's just beautiful. We, yeah, it's I'm surprised big. the show never got on the air, but yeah. <laughs> we, had, we had fun shooting the pilot. <laughs> I, I had a good time. Yeah. Anyway, there's listen, Spencer. There's so much we've got. You're a wine collector. Everything you've done to educate and get people excited about wine. Yeah. You've got all your years on television. Thirteen years on Good Morning America. Mm-hmm meeting presidents, famous people. We got a story that you just wrote a book This came out in the last year that just blew me away called You Bet Your Life, yeah. a memoir about a tough, tough gambling addiction Yeah, that uh, you had some tough times. So a lot to cover, but let's go all the way back. Where were you born and raised? Talk well, to I, me. I was born and raised in Virginia. Okay. And um, it's a beautiful state, by the way. Virginia, uh, mm-hmm. it, it has... A lot of the features that that uh, California has, it has beautiful coastline right. and warm beaches, <laughs> like Southern California. That's right. Uh, it has the the central part of the state, which is just all kinds of history, you know, colonial history, right. and Civil War history, and beautiful farmland. Then the western part of the state has mountains and actually has skiing. So uh, it's a beautiful state. But but I was born and in they've Virginia. got and now they're making some really good wines too. Oh, yes, yeah. that's right. Okay, yeah, quite a few good wines there. Uh, I was born. In, in 1947. Okay. Um, so the first 20 years of my life uh, were spent growing up under uh, the old system of racial segregation in the South, because Virginia hmm. was a, was and is a Southern state. Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. So people who are not old enough to have been ar- around and remember what you know people of color went through in those right. days uh, have probably seen you know news reports or documentaries or whatever every every day of my life for the first 20 years of my life uh, I was a second-class citizen hmm. um, and I you know you, there were signs telling you where you could could not go you know uh, whites only whites only whites only uh, black people couldn't go to restaurants or or the schools of their choice or movie theaters um, but my parents were remarkable people they uh, pointed to every little step forward in the civil rights movement that right. as a sign of hope and progress. And they instilled somehow in my brother and me this positive, hopeful, aspirational approach to life that despite the daily adversity or indignities that mm-hmm. we faced, that things were getting better and our society was moving in the right direction and you can achieve whatever you want. So I grew up with that approach to life and here I am. 
So tell, all right, that's, that's, it's fascinating. So where'd your folks come from? They were born and raised in the same uh, dirt poor little rural county that I grew up in in Virginia called Charles City County. Right. There is no city there. It's all rural. Uh, my dad was part of that um, generation of young black men in World War II who okay. went and served their countries in a, in a segregated military, oh, but came home uh, still treated like second-class citizens, not received as heroes. But they had this strong work ethic and this strong faith that, you know, God will deliver you through all kinds of adversity, but, you know, work hard and be a good person, treat other people the way you want to be treated, and, um, you know, and, and recognize injustice. I mean, be, feel outraged right. about the unfairness of it all, but but carry yourself with a, with a, with a sense of dignity and, and strength. And, uh, and, you know, I, I know all these things sound corny, you know, like <laughs> the little values that they toss mm-hmm. out in Sunday school. Sure. But somehow they all worked for me in helping me um, feel that I could, I could take the slings and arrows, you know, I, I could deal with the, the uh, difficulties that I faced in my early life. Because no matter how, here's the thing, Doug, no matter how... Um, unwelcoming and unfair. The outside world seemed to me every day. When I came home, I came to a home that was loving and accepting and supportive and encouraging. And that gave me a feeling that I can, I can get through anything in life. I know it sounds I, weird, but that was... <laughs> I'm just kind of blown away. Yeah, I my, mean, my parents were parents, I mean, to, for them, <laughs> growing up the way they did and to be... Uh, open-minded and positive and not be resentful. Yeah. And then for you and your brother, just one yeah, brother, just right? Just one brother, yeah, that's right. Um, to be, to raised, be raised in that community where, yeah, whites only, yeah. couldn't use the bathroom, candy at that restaurant. As you said, the indignity. Yeah. Um, it just kind of blows me away. And um, the fact that your folks could have that type of home for you guys... Yeah. Well, you know, that wasn't that wasn't the rule. That was the exception, okay. actually. You know, because many of my peers, many of the kids with whom I grew up, uh, did feel that sense of despair mm-hmm. and hopelessness. But the overall feeling was more one of despair and hopelessness. Like, how will I ever be able to overcome this? You know, will will this society ever make me feel like I belong? Yeah. Um, but what my parents used to do was uh, they were they were very uh, wise and instructive. We would sit down and have a family dinner in the evening after you know a long day of work for my dad. Right. We'd watch the national news. Okay. And if something came on about the civil rights movement, and you could see you know there was a step forward being made, or the march on Washington was about to occur, mm-hmm. or President Johnson was about to sign the civil rights bill into law, they would point to that. My parents would and say, "You see, things are getting better. That's this neat. is there was reason for there hope." There you go. So they kept reinforcing those teachings, you know, it wasn't like a one-time thing, have hope, be positive, go out there and conquer the world, but it was a they daily. reinforced, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> I remember sitting there with my folks watching the nightly news every night. That was like the thing. We yeah. all sat in the room and watched it. It was. Um, so sitting around the house, yeah. just because I've got to ask the question, any wine at the dinner table? Ah, no, I, I had not discovered the joys of wine when I was, when I was young. Uh, my parents, we were Southerners, and, right. and the Southern alcoholic beverage of choice, the adult beverage yes. of choice, was bourbon. Okay. So on weekends, <laughs> uh, my, my parents would, would, have, would uh, make what they call a, a highball. <laughs> pour That's right. A little bourbon into a glass, a couple of ice cubes, and some Coca-Cola, uh, and uh, that, but I didn't 
didn't discover wine until, well, when I got to college, I drank cheap wine. Right. The late 1960s, right. we were all drinking cheap wine. Um, but I uh, developed a taste for scotch in my early okay. adult years. Okay. Around, you know, 22, 23. I was about 29 when I first, when I, when I had my wine epiphany. Uh, you have time for me to describe it? Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, my my wife and I, this is my, my first wife, we, we used to go out to dinner a lot and we enjoyed fine dining. Um, we Neither of us had a curiosity about wine or a particular knowledge about wine, but whenever we'd go out to eat, uh, the server would always present a wine list and, and suggest something. And, and we'd listen to a suggestion and we'd follow that, but we didn't absorb any of the right, knowledge about right. wine. But one night... We were taking a friend out to celebrate his uh, engagement, and we went to. We were at a steakhouse in Baltimore, and I decided for this festive occasion I should order the most expensive bottle of wine on the wine list. There you go. Not knowing what that might be, and I looked at the list, and there was. This was in 1976. Okay. The wine that was the most expensive was a 1966 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. <laughs> so there's a name. Yep. So I picked it. Um, it was about 90 bucks. Can you imagine spending only 90 bucks today for Lafitte well, Rothschild? That's a, yeah. That... <laughs> uh, but from the moment the bottle was uncorked, the bouquet lifted out of the bottle and just drew me in. Um, and I, I was mesmerized. I, huh. I'd never had a sensory experience like that before. And then I, I swirled the wine in the glass instinctively. No one had ever taught me to swirl. Wow. So it just, I just somehow understood that if I swirled it, the bouquet would keep lifting out of the glass. Well, that's, that's what I, happens. And I took a taste, and I was hooked. And within two years from that um, little wine epiphany, I had accumulated, I, I had built a wine cellar in my home and had accumulated about 1,600 bottles of wine. <laughs> so that's how I started my love affair with wine, 1976. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, some people have moments like that, um, and some people don't. Yeah. Um, a lot of times I get asked that same question. It's like, nope, I don't have a moment. Yeah. I, have, uh, I have a lot of moments, but a lot there's of moments, not the yeah. one that yeah. st sticks out. Well, b bouncing back to... High school. Yeah. What'd you do in high school? Well, sports, activities, yeah. drama. I mean, d drama probably, right? Because most people think that. Yeah, right? that's because what I'm thinking. I, I've got along this 48 year career in TV. But no, I, I was never attracted to drama because huh. I never, I, I always enjoyed, um, I, I guess, being a bit of a showman, being myself. But I, I never, I knew I didn't have the talent to play another character. Okay. So I wasn't attracted to acting. But I was, all through grade school, I was, you know, a, a high achiever academically. I was a kid who wanted to prove he was the smartest guy in the class. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I also played baseball and basketball. Uh, baseball was the, the only sport I really stood out in. Uh, and I played baseball in college. Uh, even though I wasn't, I wasn't on an athletic scholarship. Okay. So, but I so high school, I I, I was student council president, president of the class, and on the baseball team, and um, popular guy. Yeah, we, I, I think it was. I mean, I was a little bit nerdy in that I always wanted to be, you know, the 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 A student, and I always had a book in my hand. But at the same time, I I, I think I had enough of a sense of humor that some of the kids found me entertaining. And I played sports, so I, you know, I had enough, enough jockeyness in me right. that I wasn't a total nerd. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, I was kind of popular. <laughs> good. That's good. And then uh, I heard, um, I don't think anybody knows about this. You tried out for the Orioles, Baltimore oh, yeah. Orioles. Yeah, when, did, well, when did that, what's that story? Okay, so, so I was in college in the late 1960s. Okay. And um, 
I was smart enough to know that I was a good college ball player, but I was far, far, far from major league okay. material. So let me make that clear right okay. away. But there was a guy on our team, um, a third baseman, who was just a, a natural. This guy was a gifted athlete. And the Orioles were scouting him. So one day there was a scout there to watch this guy, Devereaux. Mm-hmm. And on that particular day, I went three for five with two doubles and a home run. Nice, so, nice, so, nice. So the scout simply told me, hey, son, we're having an open tryout, you know, in this town called Petersburg, Virginia. He said, if you want to come, we'll be there. We'll watch you. But it wasn't like they really recognized major league talent in me. He just told me. If you want to come yeah. over. So I went to this open tryout, went through all the drills and everything. Uh, of course, I didn't make it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I did hit one I, one or two balls to the warning track. So I showed that I had some, you know, some, had some power. Had some game. Yeah. Uh, and this, in this experience, I knew I would be talking about 50 years later. And here I am. Yeah. No, I think it's great. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so in college, you're, so you get, oh, oh after yeah. high school, you go to Hampton University. That's exactly right. Where's Hampton? Hampton is, is actually in the town of Hampton, Virginia, which is near the East Coast. It's near Virginia Beach. Okay. And Norfolk. And yeah, like Norfolk that. area. I so I graduated from high school in 1965. And you know about my background growing up in the old segregated right, South. Right, right. So um, my entire life experience up to that point had been you know a rigidly racially segregated life um I had, uh, I was a, you know, I was a good student in high school and, mm-hmm. and I did well on the SAT. So I had a scholarship offer to Columbia University, an Ivy League school. And my dad really wanted me to go there because, you know, it, it you know, it's prestigious, sure. you know, your Very. son, uh, for poor black kid from the old South going to an Ivy League school. But I'm, I, I think I made a wise decision. I knew that I wasn't uh, socially and emotionally ready for that kind of environment. I was a sheltered poor kid, you know, innocent and naive. And uh, although I dreamed of going to New York one day, I knew that 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 big university life probably was too too big a leap for me at that point. So I chose a safer route. And I went to one of the historically black universities, Hampton. It was called Hampton Institute in those days. Okay. Now it's called Hampton University. Um, And I majored in English, minored in journalism. And interestingly enough, like two years into my college experience, by 67, 68, all those racial barriers in the South are coming down. And, you know, students, black students, white students, you know, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, mm-hmm. kids were working together in political campaigns, and, and they, they, were, they were integrating uh, the country. And by that time, um, you know, I was working in campaigns and whatnot and, uh, and feeling kind of liberated. Yes. Um, so I think I chose the right academic path. Um, you know, I, I'd like to be able to say, hey, I went to an Ivy League school, but you know, life turned out okay for me. Having No, gone I, I think it's, it's what you do with where you go. And yeah. I mean, um, look, well, you were right in the middle of it, the yeah. whole civil rights thing and everything. Oh, I, I worked in political campaigns, uh, marched against the war in Vietnam, okay. marched for women's rights, right. civil rights, all of that. Yeah. So in college, you're doing English and journalism. What's what was the plan? What were, was there a seed planted? Were you thinking you were going to go a certain direction? What was... Was there a? I was hoping to become a print journalist. Believe it or not, I had had no interest in broadcasting. Can you believe that? I I thought. Well, I never thought I'd do a podcast. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm with you. Well, there you go. Um, I I think um, I was so fascinated by the way the news media covered these profound 
changes that were right. going on in that in that time that uh, I, I decided I'm going to be a journalist. You know, I want to write for the New York Times, or the Washington Post and, you know, in, enlighten the masses and right. all that. Um, it just happened that the first major interview I had for a serious job was at a television station in Richmond, Virginia, of all places. Um, it was a station that had hired the first African-American newscaster uh, ever. And, and, the, and the news director who hired this guy was like the Lou Grant character from the old Mary okay. Tyler Moore show. Right. So when he met me, I, I, I recognized that he had this gruff exterior, but he was a, a guy with a heart of gold. We sat down and talked for two hours. It wasn't even an interview. It was more like getting a getting to know you kind mm-hmm. of thing. And he said, I think I see something in you. I think you can... You, I think you can go far in this business. Wow. He took me into the studio. I had never been in a television studio before in my life. Put me in front of a camera and had me read some news copy with, mm-hmm. without teleprompter. I'm just you know looking down and looking up. And he's and I was totally unintimidated, which is crazy. But I for some reason I felt like yeah I belong here. <laughs> and he said. You're a natural. You're hired. And that's how my TV career started. That's how it started? In 1970, 71. <laughs> you know, come on. I thought there was a better story because, you know, I, I want to I be on TV. So, I mean, I mean I, you know, I, I got to go meet Lou Grant. Well, but, well, the, well, the thing uh, is, I, I should, Lou Grant, yeah, I should, I should point out, I was hired to be a news reporter. That was my, my goal. I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm more known for doing weather than any other thing I've done in TV. Right. But, my passion then, and, and even now, my greatest passion uh, is still news. And so I was a news reporter. And it was two years into my stint as a reporter, I was asked to fill in on short notice on weather because our weatherman there had quit uh, unexpectedly. And I had done a lot of science reporting. So the management knew that I understood enough about the atmosphere that I could talk knowledgeably about weather. And from that, that little fill-in led to being offered the full-time weather gig, which I resisted at first because I said, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a journalist. You're a I, journalist. I do news. And they said, well, you know, we could almost double your salary. I said, well, I'm a weatherman. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, doing weather on a local newscast is a, a more prominent role. You get more exposure than a right. reporter who's out in the field and you might see him or her couple times a week. And so here, I'm saying, yeah, you're every broadcast. Yeah, every you're that, broadcast. You're that familiar face. Yeah. Okay. So I became well-known very quickly, and then stations in bigger markets started offering me jobs. And within, within a very short time, I mean like just a few years, I went from Richmond to New York, boom, just like that. Well, great. Richmond, I was reading your bio. You went to Baltimore for four or five years? Yeah, well, ba- actually, it was, it was under two years in Baltimore. It was a quick— Okay, pardon quick, me. It was two mm-hmm. years, 75 mm-hmm. to 77. Mm-hmm. And then you're in New York— when? In 77. 77. At the ABC flagship station there, WABC. So that was from 77 to 85. And during that period of time, uh, I was invited by the network to fill in a lot on Good Morning America. So even though I was working primarily for the local station in New York and was well-known in the local New York metropolitan area, I was getting, you know, eight, ten weeks of exposure on the network every year on GMA. And then finally in 1986... I joined Good Morning America full time, and um, and that was amazing. Uh, not only because it was a network show, but the management, the executives there at ABC News, told me when I was hired on GMA, "Look, we we want you to do the weather every day because that's you know right. an important role for us, and we're going to send you out in hurricanes and floods and blizzards and all that." Um, but we know you have other passions and other interests, and you can f- pursue all those interests and do any kinds of 
reports or stories or interviews you choose to do in addition to doing weather. They gave you carte blanche. Yeah, it was a rich experience. It was unbelievable. That's how I got to meet all these you know, fascinating people from you know, presidents to kings and queens and Academy Award winners and Super Bowl winners. I'm with you. Okay. So pause for a second. A quick step back. So yeah. you get, you married Diane, first wife, right after college. That's right. And That's then had exactly. a couple kids? Yes. We have two kids, uh, Jason and Jessica. Okay. Yeah. Super. And so then now you're jumping in. I mean, you was the goal to get on national TV or was it to, to get a really good um, local gig? Is it the, probably the goal is national, right? Well, well yeah, and the goal generally is national. When I, you know, when I first broke into the business, even though I, I, I said earlier journalism is my passion, and it really is, I became recognized very quickly and, and I started connecting that recognition with my uh, involvement in political causes and social causes when I was in college. And I thought, well, maybe I can just stay here in the local news, make a big name for myself yeah. in Richmond and run for Congress one day. <laughs> I really yeah. seriously thought about that. But um, things started happening. Opportunities started coming my way in TV so quickly you know, for the offers from the bigger markets. Uh, I began to realize you know, I probably should stay with this and see where it takes me. Not necessarily thinking I'd end up at the network, but I knew I'd go somewhere bigger than Richmond and bigger than Baltimore. Right. And then when the New York offer came, I thought, hey, this is it. And I was, I, I mean, I, I, I want... I wanted to be clear that that when I talk about how quickly these opportunities came, I'm not being boastful. I'm, I'm still kind of in awe uh, about how quickly these opportunities came to, came my way. So I, I'm I'm trying to make the point that I'm a fortunate guy. I believe that I deserve those you know those those opportunities, uh, but there are many other deserving people who never get them. You know. Well, but anyhow. Uh, well, so, you listen. You're a talented guy, right place at the right time. That's and, it. And, you're, and you work hard, but so. But me, if getting back to your wine epiphany, was this that was right about when you were in New York? That that's right, was just before we moved okay. from Baltimore to New York. All right. Yeah. So that's what, so. Meanwhile, so now you are you're in New York. You yeah. got the wine bug. Yep. Um, <laughs> and when you get into things, you get into them big. Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but so I so, I, so so this is what the mid seventies. Yeah. Now late seventies. Late seventies. Yeah, Seventy seven. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. So we got in the business. We started making wine in the late 70s. But I remember it was really tough to sell California wine in New York. It was. All, New York merchants were only buying imports. So yeah. talk to me. What were you drinking? What were you collecting? Yeah. Was there something like the Wine Spectator? Were there wine clubs? How did you like learn about it? How did you get into it? That, that is that's such your, a great question. Yeah. Well, that... After that weekend experience, my, my wine epiphany with the, with the 66 Lafitte, uh, I, as you pointed out, when I get into something, I really get into it. <laughs> so I went out and bought every book uh, I could find on wine uh, that weekend. I went to bookstores and I bought, you know, Alexis Lachine and Hugh Johnson and Michael Broadbent and all those. You right, know, all the those, books. Yeah, and started reading. every. And then as I would read more about um, the great wine regions of the world, you know, my curiosity was piqued. So then I would go out and buy different varietals. But I was buying mainly old world wines. I mean, you know, okay. because I'd been introduced to Bordeaux and I loved it. Uh, and I tried Burgundy and I thought, yeah, red Burgundy. And I thought, yeah, I, I guess I don't like the Pinot Noir grape as much okay. as I like the Bordeaux grapes. Okay. Uh, then I tried some white wines and I tried some Italian wines. But I was buying mainly Bordeaux. Okay. And, and uh, apart from 
you know, reading all these books, I had, I found a wine mentor. Okay. I was buying a lot of my wine from a wine store in Manhattan that was a block from the ABC studios <laughs> called 67 Wines and Spirits. I know that place. You know that place? I, I, I and, walked you know, in there Bernie selling, Weiser, yeah, the I owner. Yeah. selling wine to him. And years ago, Jack Lang was the wine oh, guy, okay. the late Jack Lang. He was my wine mentor. And I'd stop in there all, you know, three days a week and we would just talk about wine. Sure. Yeah. How fun. Yeah. It was great. So you're getting in the wine you're in New York. You're in the big time. Yeah. Um, we mentioned it before. This is when this when the gambling thing kicked in. That's exactly right. Okay, it's like um, I, in 1977 when I started working at WABC, uh, there were a bunch of guys in the newsroom who had a, a Friday night poker game. Okay, uh, that that went on in the basement of the building after the 11 o'clock news. So I I had played poker once or twice. I thought, yeah. oh, well, let me play poker with the guys. Yeah. Um, and what started as a friendly game where you could win or lose a couple hundred bucks on a Friday night morphed into a cutthroat game oh, man. in which you could lose a thousand or two dollars on any given Friday night. Um, and <clears throat> not being an experienced player, I was losing more often than winning. So I, that's when I, I think I was first, um, I don't know, not bitten by the bug because I wasn't really enjoying it that much. But I began chasing my losses, you know, Interesting. I wanted, I couldn't wait to go back every Friday night to try to make up for what I had lost the previous Friday night. And at about that time, casino gambling opened up in Atlantic city, New Jersey. Oh, that's what became legalized. Yeah. Okay. In 1978. Okay. And, uh, that in Atlantic city was just over a two hour drive from New York. So, uh, I could easily get down there for a weekend getaway. Uh, with my family and my kids were young and sure. we, my wife and I would we'd drive down with the kids or with another couple, spend a weekend. But from the moment I first walked into a casino, I was, I was hooked. Uh, th hmm. There was something electric about it. You know, there was a, a buzz a that buzz. I felt. Um, and it was, it was almost like a drug, I guess. Yeah. And, I, and I don't do drugs, but I can imagine that the, the high that I felt being in the casino was what... A lot of people yeah. are chasing with chasing. substances. So I played craps and blackjack and all those games. And uh, within a short time, I had become a high roller. Within a couple of years, I had begun playing at such high stakes and putting so much money at risk that I was getting, you know, the VIP treatment with the gourmet meal uh, restaurants and the VIP suites Sweet. and the limos and you know everything is comped, right? Because they know you're going to give them enough action. The casino thing, you became a VIP, which means that you got the limos, you got the suite, you got the free dinners, gourmet dinners. I'm assuming you're getting great wines and you oh. being into wines what was that all about oh yeah was that yeah. kind of fun oh that, that, that was, part of it was was kind of fun okay, yeah right. even even on a losing night in the casino okay. i knew i could go into the gourmet restaurant order a bottle of you know 1959 chateau latour or or 61 chateau margot wow uh, or uh, an 87 schaefer hillside select <laughs> which i did <laughs> <laughs> So to make a long story a little bit shorter, yeah. um, within about uh, six years, from between 1978 and 1984, I had lost so much money and was so embarrassed, that, you know, felt so uh, uh, silly and foolish and ashamed of myself. I didn't yeah. want people to know. Sure. Um, I was borrowing money here and there to cover my losses and taking out extra mortgages on the home, and I fell behind on federal income taxes to the, to the point where... 
A guy in a dark suit, like something out of a movie, showed up at my house one day, representing the IRS, tacked a sign on my front door saying this house has, this home has been seized by the Internal Revenue for uh, service for um, failure to pay back taxes. Oh, Spencer. And I had to move my family out of the house. The house was sold at auction by the, by oh. the IRS, and we had to move it to a rental property until I could recover. Right. That was the beginning of nearly 30 years of... Uh, being on this destructive path of yeah. gambling, yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, I, I I was on the verge of financial collapse, uh, even though I was earning a lot of money for the entire thirty years I was gambling. Uh, and you know, there were frequent trips to Vegas, and sure. they'd fly me to the Bahamas. Uh, uh, when when Good Morning America would send me out on a on a Friday remote, you know, they would send me to different places all around right. the country. If I was anywhere west of the Mississippi River, at the end of that Friday broadcast, I would take a flight to Vegas and, and gamble till Sunday and come home or fly my family out and call it a vacation. Right. You know? right. And then uh, if I was anywhere east of the Mississippi River on a Friday, I'd end up in Atlantic City as my gambling venue. Um, and I was, uh, the first few years it was exciting and it was fun and, you know, the high roller treatment sure. was uh, like a narco- narcotic. Yeah, you get to, it's, it sucks you right in. Yeah, but, but you know, after... After 20 years or so, it was just wearing me down. I was, you know, I had earned all this money and was taking care of my family, but I was always drowning in debt. Yeah. And, and you know, always stressed out about how can I handle this and make it right without the world finding out. Oh, because you're, you're Spencer Christian on national TV, Good Morning America. Yeah. That, oh, that, that must have been a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure. And, and, and yet, I, I think the way I was able to survive that pressure and, and th- even thrive under it, because it's huge, the pressure is huge. I mean, it's mind bending, uh, is that I, I did have other things in my life that gave me joy. You okay. know, my family gave me joy. I was, a, and I still am, right. a dedicated father. Um, I loved my work, so I never missed a day from work because of gambling. Right. I showed up every day at, <laughs> at the studio at 5 a.m. for GMA. Um, and, you know, I'm a person of faith, so I continued the practice of my faith and, you know, feeling God's presence in my life and, and, and his support. But despite all of that, I was, uh, it took me all those years to get off that self-destructive path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're off it. I'm off it. (laughs) Speaking of destructive things, I want to come back. You mentioned uh, going on these remotes. So you're the guy. (laughs) Sorry. You're the guy in the rain slicker. Yes. You know, out on the uh, corner street in New Orleans or somewhere with the wind, you know, your wind's blowing you sideways and, 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 you know, there's trees blowing in the background behind you, you know, like down the street. Uh, I mean, I've met a couple of folks like you've done these, these, they do the disaster reporting and the stories are classic. You know, the one is the one guy is a photographer. He says, well, I land, I get the biggest SUV I can get couple five-gallon jugs of gas, couple five-gallons jugs of water, and I'm driving in on an empty freeway where the, free, the four lanes coming out are packed. And um, any, tell me, any, any crazy, wild, dangerous? You I'm just, sure there's many, but... You described it perfectly. That's exactly what it's like. So let's say a, a hurricane was expected to make landfall in Charleston, South Carolina. Right. So... Um, the, you know, the airports start to shut down within 100 miles of wherever the storm is expected to hit. So so GMA would fly me into some place, you know, uh, maybe uh, in Tennessee, and I'd get into a rental car and drive 
myself all night to that point uh, on the oh. South Carolina coast. Wow. And as you said, as I'm driving in, everybody else is it's driving out because they're being <laughs> evacuated. So, and I'm in the big SUV with the, with the camera yeah. crew, and we'd stop along the way and buy non-perishable food items okay. that could last us two or three days. Because we know electric power is going to be out. You're not going to be able to get a hot shower. There won't be any restaurants. Oh, man. So we're surviving on, you know, peanuts and peanut butter and right. <laughs> chips and chips. crackers. Yeah. Um, and then you, and then the, there's the storm. Right. You know, you get there and it's only you and the emergency services people. Everybody else is gone. <laughs> and the wind starts to get stronger. And, and fortunately, I don't know if it's fortunate, but fortunate for the TV producers, a lot of times the storm would be at its peak while I was actually on the air. The timing was... Oh. <laughs> so here I am <clears throat> with one arm wrapped around a utility oh. pole, so I'm to get blown away and uh, and struggling you know, against the wind and the elements to describe what's going on. Uh, it's uh, uh, The crazy thing is I was never afraid for my life. My, my thought was always, can I get out of here before all the roads close, before the, the bridge is shut down? And will I be able to get home to see my family this weekend? Wow. And sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I was stranded in these places for two or three days until power was restored and the floodwaters receded. Oh. <laughs> And I went. In, I was in fourteen hurricanes. Fourteen. 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 <laughs> and um, and then there were floods and blizzards and all kinds of natural calamities. And, and you'd go. You'd go find them. Oh, I was the guy. They called me the what the uh, the master of disaster. They would say <laughs> I was. <laughs> I was one. the guy. Good morning, America. Sent into every uh, disaster, and uh, and even uh, earthquakes, which are not weather related, sure. even though we. We refer to think to earthquake weather here, but um, I was on a World Series assignment in 1989 during the Bay Bridge World Series and the Loma Prieta earthquake hit. You were on that one. I was here, and I had covered the first two games, which were in Oakland. And you may recall there was a day off, and then the day the game three was supposed to be played was the day Loma Prieta occurred. So. I thought, oh, I'm going to be smart this time. Traffic is crazy here in the Bay Area. I'm not going to try to drive down to the ballpark to Candlestick in time for the start of the game because my, my assignment was to do like post-game interviews. Oh, post-game. So when the earthquake hit, I was on the 19th floor of the St. Francis Hotel at oh, Union Square. Oh, man. Can you imagine being up in a high-rise building like that? Was it moving? But, it was oh, moving. Oh, gosh. It, yes. It, it, was, it was terrifying. I thought I was going to die right there. Oh. But anyhow, I you know I Elias and, was, Elias and I were at the game. Yeah, hmm? Elias and I were at the game. Oh, you were. Someone oh. gave us tickets wow. right at the last minute. It was the Giants versus the A's. You know, local. <laughs> so we went down. We had just finished harvest. Wow. And our, our sales guy said, "Hey, I got two tickets. You guys have been working hard. Go, go hit the, go see the game." We're like, "Cool." <laughs> Beautiful day in October. We get down there early. Everybody's you know tailgating, going crazy. We, you know, we split a six pack. All we could take was three beers a piece because we were so tired from harvest. But we, <laughs> right, we just, we were just, right. we just sitting in the sun in the parking lot because it was just like, you know, after the after harvest, it's always a big letdown. Yeah. And we're in there, and that thing that shook, and um, oh, it was like we got out of there real fast, and uh, it was a long drive home. What What was your first reaction? I mean, were you frozen? Uh, it was shocking? funny. It was um, the noise was definitely, and I thought people were slamming their feet, like stamping. I looked up, and no one's feet were moving. It's like, oh no! And wow. then the light towers started really swinging. Yeah, it was over, and then everybody cheered. Power went out, but it was still daylight. <laughs> yeah, it was still it was five o'clock in the October. It was still daylight. Um, everybody cheered because it's like, hey, because San Francisco lost the first two games. 
And it's like, okay, we had an earthquake. Now we're going to win. We're going to come back and beat you guys, Oakland. Right. Right. But right. then it was like 20 minutes, nothing going on. No one knew what was happening. Mm. And then a guy next to me had a little mini TV. I heard him go, oh, no. I look at the TV and it showed the section of the Bay Bridge down. Yeah. And that's oh, when you know, I said, Elias, just follow me. We're out of here. So yeah. we got out. Yeah. I said, you know. It's but it was, a, it was a long night. Yeah. That was a long night. 19th yeah. floor. Ooh, for you. Yeah. Now, I ran down 19 flights of stairs. Uh, you know, yeah. there was a, only a 15-second quake, but I think I probably got down eight <laughs> or 10 floors before he could stop shaking. You started <laughs> yeah. moving right away. Oh, yeah. I yeah. wanted to get out of that building. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's crazy. But well, I, I've had so many assignments like that where, you know, you, the, the thing that you initially went there for became a different story. Else. Yeah. Interesting. That's cool. <laughs> And then 1995, you started a new show. Yeah, on Home Garden TV, HGTV, and tell me about that. Well, I was. It was a wine show. It was called Spencer Christian's Wine Cellar, and um, you know, I had talked so much on Good Morning America during the little casual chat segments about my passion for wine uh, that viewers knew that. I was a wine enthusiast. Right. And whenever we'd do a cooking segment, the chef would always have me there to talk about food and wine pairing. So out of the blue, I got a call one day in 1994 from someone representing this new network called uh, HGTV, Home and Garden mm -hmm. Television. And uh, I was asked if I would if I might be interested in hosting a show about wine, a show that would be designed to kind of, you know, take the intimidation factor away and make wine more accessible. Right. To, and I said, yeah, you got the right guy. And we just boom, did a deal like that. It was another one of those opportunities that just came out of nowhere. Well, nothing, <laughs> nothing had been done like on TV with wine before, That's I right. don't think, right? That was the first That's, one. Yeah, it was the first. And it, it, it ran for, for five years. Okay. Uh, it, it, I think three years into the run, yeah, three years into the run around 1998, um, Scripps Broadcasting, which is the parent company of HGTV, bought the Food Network and, okay. and moved my show over to the Food Network for its final two years. Uh, but then at the end of that five-year run, the Food Network people, <laughs> strangely enough, were not interested in having a wine show on the Food Network. So the oh. show didn't get renewed. Um, you know, because wine and food go together, you'd think it would be a, you, you think would so. be a perfect marriage. But. Tell me, what'd you do on the show? What were some of the oh, things you did? Oh, gosh. We would, we would go to wineries and uh, talk okay. to vintners and winemakers about, first of all, about, um, you know, the the winemaking lifestyle. I mean, family winemakers like okay. the Schaefer family, the Mondavi family, the Groth family. Uh, we talk about, you know, the family legacy and the history and uh, and why they had such a passion for, for what they do, you know, much right. like you and I have right. talked many times. But we'd also go to restaurants sometimes and do segments with chefs on food and wine pairing. We would uh, talk to uh, a sommelier about wine etiquette you know, like what, what, yeah. do you, what do you do when you're handed the cork? Right. I mean, if you sniff the cork, does it really tell you anything about what the wine is like? Um, so what's proper wine etiquette? Uh, I, we, we did segments in wine stores about uh, cultivating a relationship with a wine merchant, as I did with Jack Lane. Mm -hmm. um, if you have an interest in wine and, and want to learn more about wine and not feel foolish, not know what to do when you pick up a wine list or walk into a wine store, Get to know a wine merchant. They they love to talk about wine, and they will help guide you. And you know, so we did segments like that. You were doing. I'm and I'm of the mind. I think we still need that. Yeah. And I'm just kind of kind of amazed. There's nothing like that on TV. I am too. And you jumped into this thing. I 
what was the motivation? There was no template for you to work from to, to come up with it. I mean, how'd you come up with it? And what was the whole process to, yeah. to figure that one out? Yeah, well, it, you know, it was, um, it was on the job learning is basically okay. what it was, but I had a, a brilliant producer. Um, HGTV had, uh, done a contract with this production company in LA called, um, oh gosh, Gary Grossman. I forget his partner's name, but it, it, there were two guys there. One was Gary Grossman. And and they had a producer in-house who was assigned to my show. Her name was Kathy Katz. And Kathy knew very little about wine going into this. So we had a couple of meetings where we I talked to her about my passion for wine, mm -hmm. very much like you're talking to me now. And she was taking notes and... Um, <laughs> There was, she said there was something infectious about the way I talked about how much I loved wine that stimulated her interest in it. So she started reading about wine and sampling wine and tasting <laughs> wine. And as we started doing this show, um, my TV experience combined with her production experience and our shared passion and curiosity about wine led to ideas that to just worked on the air. And uh, I mean, the first show was, was, I think it started with me walking down between two rows of vines uh, at um, oh, uh, Saint-Supery. Right. Yeah. And um, we, sh we filmed this in like 1994. The show hadn't even gone on the air yet. Mm -hmm. And I said... You know, people often ask me, what what is it about wine I love? And I just started, you know, talking spontaneously about my passion for wine. I talked about that wine epiphany I described mm -hmm. to you with the Lafitte. And um, and I just, and the camera just followed me, you know. And when it was over, Kathy said, that's it. That's what's going to work for us. She said that natural enthusiasm and spontaneity. She said, and if we can carry that over to maybe doing segments with chefs or segments with winemakers or going into the barrel room, she said, as long as you know your passion always is at the forefront, uh, it's going to bring people in. And it did. It did. It and did. the response yeah. was, how was oh response? my gosh. Uh, people would, would stop me on the street and say, you know, I never thought I'd watch a show about wine, but, you know, I always wanted to know, how, you know, when I when they give me that wine list, what, I sh what should I be looking for? Right. Or what does that label tell me about what's in the bottle? And they, they would say, but you explained it to me, and now I don't feel intimidated. And, <laughs> and we would uh, sometimes decide what the next segment would be based on what people were saying to me in, in the public. On you know? the street. Sometimes they would, uh, they would offer suggestions like, why don't you do something, you know, with a chef about cooking with wine? And go, mm -hmm. Okay, you know, we'll there do that. There you go. <laughs> oh, how cool. Yeah. Well, you're, you, were, you were a pioneer and you still are, so congratulations. Well, well, I guess we became the template for others. You did, you did. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not sure what the, it's, it's, it just seems like wine doesn't work on TV. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I guess what do you not. think? Yeah. I don't, I guess the reason is I, I've, I've heard this mm -hmm. <laughs> this opinion that uh, food uh, cooking works on TV because people watch the cooking demonstration and feel like okay I can try to duplicate I that can at go home. Do that. I can but that they pot. they right. can't they don't have that same feeling about watching looking at a wine show. I mean they not going to make wine at home. Right. But, but I still feel like we offer them useful information. You know, uh, we talk about the joys of wine and the wine experience and um, how it's more than just you know sipping a beverage. It's about you know, relationships. But so far, no wine show on TV has really made it big. I think yours was the longest. Probably. I think it was. That five-year five run. Years, yeah. yeah. 
Look at look at all the things you do. How do you do? You sleep at night? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I I don't require a lot of sleep, but I, if I get six hours, uh, I'm I'm fine. Um, and sometimes after six hours, well, I, this morning, for example, <laughs> I, I, I got up this morning at about six after having gone to bed uh, just before midnight, and my wife said, "How'd you sleep, hon?" And I said, I slept really well. She said, you didn't wake up at all during the night. You just, she, I don't normally snore. She right. said, you even snored last night. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I sleep pretty well. <laughs> so 1999. Yes. Big year for you. Yes. You moved from uh, Good Morning America out to the San Francisco Bay Area, yep. local show here. Um, your HGTV show ended. Yep. Marriage ended. Yeah. Um, tough time what was how'd you get through all that you know I'm, I'm still not sure but i did get through it uh 1999 was probably the most difficult year of my life okay. because uh, as my final contract at good morning america was expiring at the end of 98 okay uh the the management there was new management this wasn't the management that had originally hired me okay. made it clear to charlie gibson joan london and me that was we were that mm -hmm. main team for so many years that uh they were looking to build a new team for a new generation of viewers mm. and we weren't treated unkindly it's just that we were forewarned that at the end of this contract there won't be a new one so by the time mine expired uh joan was already gone from the show and so was charlie gibson although they eventually brought him back so it was I mean, certainly a letdown uh even though i was treated nicely uh who wants to leave a show like oh, that a job be, like that yeah that's gotta be tough so um so abc7 kgo in san francisco an, an ABC-owned station made me an offer to move here, uh, for which I'm very grateful. Huh. Uh, I've been here for 20 years now. But it, it in terms of uh, visibility, prestige, and certainly income, it's a huge step down to go from the network to the local news. So here I am in all this gambling debt. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm Sorry, how could I forget that? <laughs> yeah, I still got massive yeah. gambling okay. debt. I, 1999, as I was moving here, I had credit lines at 14 casinos in Atlantic, in uh, Las Vegas and Atlantic City, and they were all tapped out. Um, and so I'm moving here with all this debt and trying to juggle it behind on federal income taxes again. Okay. Losing this wonderful job that I love so much and moving to a place I loved, but with severely reduced income. Okay. And also uh, at that time going through a divorce uh, from my first wife. Uh, you know, people always ask, well, was gambling the reason? Well, it, it, gambling had to be a reason that she wanted to leave the marriage, but it wasn't the reason. Mm -hmm. And out of respect to Diane, my first wife, whom I uh, love dearly and respect so much, uh, I, I won't share all of the details of why she wanted to leave the marriage, uh, but she did. And mm -hmm. and I reached a point where I realized that her mind couldn't be changed. So we went through this amicable divorce, but it was still painful, still stressful, pain. and expensive. Mm -hmm. So now I'm out here, and I and I, I felt lost the first year I was here. Uh, I was 3,000 miles away from everything and everyone that had been dear to me for so long. Right. And even though I'm in this beautiful place and I'm close to the wine country, which I dearly love, and I'm cultivating new friends... I've got all this stress and I'm dealing with money out of these casinos and, you know, they're going to deposit these markers I've signed mm -hmm. in my, my checking account because I don't have the money to, to pay them off. So I ended up going through a bankruptcy oh. <clears throat> that um, in the year 2000, I believe it was, 2000 or 2001, okay. um, that 
didn't get rid of my my ordinary consumer debt. You know, I honored those debts, but it wiped out the casino debt. And um, and I, I quit gambling for about almost three years. Okay. Uh, and the um, the longer I was away from it, the less I missed it. The, the more I was, you know, really embracing my new life. So now we're talking 2001, 2002. And you got remarried in there too, got, right? Got remarried. Okay. Actually, uh, well, I got remarried just 12 years ago, but it was to the woman who became my sweetheart around 2002. Yeah, got to it. Lynn. Oh, okay. To okay. Lynn. Thank yeah. you. So by 2002, Lynn and I are together, and, and I'm, you know, getting back on my feet financially a little bit. Sure. Uh, and emotionally a little bit. Um, <laughs> but then in 2003, remember when the televised tournaments, uh, t- uh, poker tournaments became a big deal? People wa- were watching the World Series of Poker. I do remember that. No, don't tell me. Come on. I, so, I had, so I thought I had quit gambling and, uh, oh. and I had this relapse. I started playing poker in 2003, 2004. I don't, I don't know why. I just I fell into it. Okay. And so I didn't. It, it wasn't quite like the old high roller stuff where you know they copy the suites and the rooms right. and all that. But I was hooked on the on the on the game. On the game. So, it was just like my my uh, uh, stage one of my gambling. <laughs> now I'm in stage two, stage. and I've got to play at higher stakes. It wasn't enough for me to go to a low stakes game just enjoy the the challenge. I had to play for higher stakes and higher stakes, looking for that bigger thrill, that bigger win. And of course, that led to another downward spiral. So for the next 10 years, I had this downward spiral financially once again, and and I still had this gambling addiction. You know, it had, it was expressing itself in a different form, mm-hmm. but I was just as addicted as I had been. So the turning point came around uh, 2012-13. Um, my daughter, Jessica, um, who is now the mother of my two awesome grandsons, mm-hmm. Noah and Zach, uh, Jessica came out to visit me in 2012, and she had just gotten engaged to Josh, my, my wonderful son-in-law, and she basically said this to me. She said, Dad, you know that I love and admire I, I love you and admire many things about you, and I think you're a person of great character, and I, I you know, really admire the, the things you've overcome in your life. She said, but uh, I'm getting married soon, as you know. I'm going to bring grandchildren into your life, and I want you to ask yourself if this is the behavior you want to model for your grandchildren. Mm. She said, if you were to have a heart attack and die at the poker table one night, do you think people would remember the good things about you and the positive things and all right. of your accomplishments, or the, would they remember that you were just a degenerate gambler? Uh, she said, I, I, I hope you can turn your life around. Oh, wow. Well, I was, Doug She's, was unbelievable. Uh, you know, you, you talk to people who have these sudden religious conversions and they, 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 they call it a, a come to Jesus sure. moment. I had a come to Jessica moment, you know, and right, right then and there, I knew that I wanted gambling out of my life. Wow. And that's where the turnaround began. Jessica, what a brave girl. Wow. Really brave, really brave. And um, so I, I'm often asked to just put into a few words uh, how it is I was able to turn it around. Right. And I say I was saved by love. I was saved by love. My, my daughter loved me enough that she was willing to take the risk that she could alienate me or offend me or you know tick me off. But, but she just, but but she did it lovingly. She didn't lecture me, mm-hmm. you know. She didn't scold me. She right. she started by saying, "Dad, I love you and I admire you, 
but I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And how can you not re- how can you not respond in the right way to that? How can you not be receptive to that message? I'm with you. Yeah. Children are funny that way, aren't they? They, are. <laughs> they really are. I have a few similar stories. <laughs> so I really appreciate your openness and forthcoming on, on your life, Spencer, and, and, and your addiction, the gambling addiction. And you wrote this memoir, book, called it You Bet Your Life, which yeah. outlines the story. Why did you do it? What were you, what was, were you trying to get a message across? Was it just a... Uh, yeah, I, there, what was the motivation, or what was the goal? Yeah, or if I, there is one. I, no, no, there was one. I, I think there are basically two goals, Doug. Um, one is self-serving, okay. and that is that it was uh, I needed that cleansing confession. I needed to just go public okay. to, to relieve myself of the guilt and the shame that had built up in me over this thirty-year period. I mean, mm-hmm. I, um, I mean, I have high self-esteem and all that, but uh, I was carrying so much guilt and shame because. I would think about the person I always believed I was meant to be, mm-hmm. uh, but I wasn't really, I hadn't become that person. You know, I had uh, been so wasteful and willful and uh, irresponsible, and I was just ashamed of myself. So I felt, you know, if I know for sure now this thing is out of my life, I don't want any part of it anymore. Uh, if I just tell the world, you know, I was living a double life, and, um, and, and, I'm, and I'm done with it. It relieved me of all that guilt and shame. But the second purpose that it serves is that it's an example for other people who might be facing any kind of you know, difficulty or craziness in their lives that you can turn your life around. It takes courage. Mm-hmm. It takes strength. And sometimes it takes support, a lot of support from other, other people. Um, but you can do it. And uh, I guess I, I want people to know if this, this guy they used to see on TV every morning, on national TV, who seemed to have a perfect life but didn't have the perfect life. Right. If, if he has problems like this and can talk about them, maybe I can talk about my problems too, you know? Which is the first step to fixing them. Yeah. Wow. Well, you're yeah. a liberated guy. I am. I am now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I certainly am, yeah. And, uh, the, the, you know, I, the responses to the book have been amazing. This book is never going to sell a million copies. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get rich from it. Um, but it has been richly rewarding, if I may make that sure. little play on words, in that people write me, send me Facebook messages, or walk up to me in, in person, in, in the public, and say, you know, I read your book. Wow, you know, it really helped me because I had a problem like this, or it gave me the courage to go talk to my spouse or mm-hmm. my sibling. Yeah, about something. So, yeah. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank That's you. Great. Thanks. And back to back to wine. Mm. Um, you've got a new show. Yes, uh, Sips with Spencer, which you were nice enough to put me on about a year ago. I appreciate. It. Tell us, tell us about Sips with Spencer. Well, What's that all about? That's still one of our most memorable segments. Uh, the segment <laughs> we did. No, actually, it was just. I mean, well, you know, I it was mean, fun. we, we had a lot time. of fun. We were just being ourselves. Right. Um, so the, it's similar to the sh- the show I did years ago, um, in that <clears throat> I'm introducing the audience, the viewing audience, to the joys of wine, uh, and in all the ways that, that right. we enjoy wine, you know, and I, I want to, we, we go into uh, wineries like yours, and, mm-hmm. and talk to the, the people there, and the families there, and the vintners, and the vineyard managers, and the winemakers, about everything that goes into taking the wine from grape to glass, 
But beyond that, uh, we do some of those other things I talked about earlier, uh, like uh, food and wine pairings. And uh, I did a segment at Meadowood with the, with the executive chef there. Oh, great. And the sommelier. And I helped the chef cook a meal, and the sommelier uh, gave us guidance on, on pairing the various courses with wine. And we've gone into wine shops and try to help deliver the message that looking for just the right wine shouldn't be an intimidating experience mm-hmm. if you're not a knowledgeable inophile. Um, so it, it's, you know, all those things. It's, it's about the total enjoyment of wine. And we're looking for a uh, long-term sponsor. You know, we had limited sponsorship early on. We had eight uh, half-hour episodes. Right. Yours was one of the first. And um, then that sponsorship arrangement expired, and we've got limited sponsorship for a couple more segments here and there. So we're still looking for a, a long, long-term deal that will give us a whole season's worth of programs. Okay, and good. There must be somebody out there. Well, maybe some. Yeah, one of our one of our loyal listeners. You know, <laughs> contact Spencer. There you we go. Need a sponsor. Well, good. And uh, how about you? Are you still collecting? Oh, as yeah, far as wine, I, I am, but but my collection is way more limited than it was back in the day, <laughs> back in my New York days when I was making the big bucks and had the the wine cellar in the house and all that. Uh, I could I could uh, I could keep a. A collection of 15, 16, 1800 bottles. Uh, I think Lynn and I probably now have about 500 bottles, okay. roughly. Um, and you know, as we as we consume the wine, we replenish the mm-hmm. stock. And and of course, my my tastes have branched out beyond yeah, Bordeaux. Good. That's why I was curious about that. Is it still Bordeaux, or you're, you're, you're where, where are we? Where what's our interest these days? Well, Bordeaux will always own a special place in my heart because you know it's right. like your first love. But um, and, and here in the Napa Valley, it's like being you know in Bordeaux 2.0 because <laughs> <laughs> that's true, right? Uh, so I get to enjoy the the Bordeaux family of grapes, but you know from a different terroir and a different, mm-hmm. slightly different character. Um, and, and so I, I have a lot of yeah, a lot of Napa Valley a lot of cabs and, yeah. Yeah, and cab-based wines. Um, and in the last five or six years, I've developed a great passion for the wines from Tuscany. Oh, my gosh. I love what they do with the Sangiovese grape. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. That's, so that's I've got favorite. Brunello and County Classico Reserva and the Super Tuscans, which yeah. are made from the many of them from the Bordeaux grapes. But some sometimes I, I I love those, but boy, just the just the Chianti, the yeah, classic Chianti, the yeah. reservas are just great. They were they were yeah. amazing. They had one at dinner last night. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well good. So Spencer, you've got we can still see you weeknights on ABC. Yeah, doing the weather. Uh, doing the weather uh, Monday through Friday uh, on the 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. news. Got it uh, on ABC Seven, um, and uh, and occasionally, or now Sandia Patel does the weather at five and eleven. Those are the two half-hour newscasts, and I do the weather at four oh, and six, the two one-hour newscasts. So if one of us is off, then the other one does all the shows. All four. So once in a while, you'll see me on the eleven o'clock news, uh, and then we have Drew Tuma who is our uh, weekend uh, weather anchor, uh, meteorologist. When Drew is off, sometimes um, I'm the only person available to to do a weekend fill-in. That happens maybe four or five times a year. But my my regular schedule, Monday through Friday, 4 and 6 p.m., and and I'm loving it. I mean, I'm I'm 72 and a half. Man, <laughs> and you still, don't you don't look 72. <laughs> you look good. Oh, well, thank you, sir. It, well, red wine is a preservative. You know that. <laughs> um, but no, I I still um, really enjoy what I do. I, I just I I love my job and, and uh, I I love the experiences that it uh, affords me. 
Um, and as long as uh, I'm energetic and youthful enough that they want to keep putting me on the air, I'll keep going in there to work. <laughs> That's great. You know, I've, I've always been curious about your guys' work schedule. So, I mean, do you get in at, if you're on at four and six, I'm, I'm assuming you probably you get into work late morning, noon, something like that? Or That's is it, about is right. It, about about noon. right? And mm-hmm. then you're out of there? Uh, I get in there uh, generally between 12 and 1230. Okay. And it takes about three hours to, uh, you know, you know uh, review all the uh, weather charts and maps and uh, computer models and read through the weather discussions mm-hmm. that are provided by the National Weather Service and other forecasting services to get a you know a good mental picture of what's going how on. the weather's moving. Yeah. And then um, after you, after you do that, I, that doesn't take three hours. That takes about an hour. Mm-hmm. Then after you, we do that, we have to build a sequence of graphic images on our computer graphic system that will illustrate. Uh, how the weather is moving, and although we have all this high-tech, state-of-the-art equipment, it's right. time-consuming. It's you a time-consuming con- process because much of the information that you see on these graphics has to be manually input. So, so you're doing that work. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Each right. person who's on the air is responsible for his or her own show. Okay. So yeah, I'm doing that work, and we now we used to have weather producers, but that position has been largely eliminated. I think as stations are cutting costs. So the person who's on the air is the weather producer. Doing the producing. Wow. That's good. That's good to know. <laughs> yep. And uh, I always love the ones where um, guys or gals doing the late night shows. Um, and they're all dressed up. It's like, okay, they went out to dinner. They had to go some fundraiser. And it's like, yeah, I've kind of, I'm kind of look, watching them going, like, yeah, have they been drinking or not? I can't really tell. You're a little bit. They, they might have been. Yeah, yeah but no, they, they, they're professionals. They're they professionals. That's true. That's, but, you know, <laughs> so many people are fascinated by, by weather because sure. it affects so many things in our lives. Uh, during my years at Good Morning America, I, I did a number of things we called weather duets. There would be, you know, famous people who would come into the studio to be interviewed for their latest book or a movie or whatever, mm-hmm. and they would see me at this green screen and they would want to do the weather with me. So I did weather duets with, um, well, Bill Murray who did the movie. Oh my uh, Groundhog Day, yeah. uh, Chevy Chase, uh, uh, Billy Crystal, Tom <laughs> Hanks, uh, even Henry Kissinger did the weather with me. <laughs> That's really funny. I'm gonna. I gotta look those We've up. We've got a cold front over here. <laughs> oh, anything new coming up? Anything in the works? Nothing uh, new other than trying to get this wine show off the ground. But I, I do plan to write another book. Oh, good. Uh, and I'm not quite sure. I haven't really narrowed down precisely what the theme is going to be. Other than I know I have to write about my own life experience because that's the thing I know best. Right. And the the thing I have the most expertise in is you know reflecting on uh, my own life experience. Um, so it was. So yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure that, out, that and, out and carve out a schedule for writing. Uh, my wife and I travel to, to Italy every September. We're so in love with Italy now. Oh. So we're already planning next September's trip to Italy. Great. And you, you probably know from reading the book that I developed a friendship with Jimmy Carter mm-hmm. over the years and uh, had the great honor in 1999, when I first moved here, of being invited to Georgia to emcee his 75th birthday celebration. Well, this year... 2019, I was invited back to MC his 95th, 95th birthday celebration. So I'm in fairly regular contact with uh, the, the close associates of the Carter family, uh, checking on his health now mm-hmm. because you know he has had a couple of falls had and couple. spills lately. But what I'm telling you, he's a 
He's a tough dude. <laughs> 95, he's still out there building houses for the I know, poor. For the Habitat for Humanity. Habitat for Humanity, right, yeah. Right. yeah. Wow. I have great admiration for him. Good for you. And oh, and then, of course, I, I invest a lot of my time in being a grandpa now. That's right. Well, that's yeah. big. That's a priority. Yeah. And if people want to find your book, You Bet uh, Your Life, where do they, where uh, do they look? It's available uh, at, at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, uh, you can order it on Amazon.com, okay. Barnes & Noble. I, uh, no, no knock against Barnes & Noble, but I think the price is better at Amazon. Okay. Uh, and there are still some bookstores that, that have it uh, available, but uh, you know, the, the first release... Uh, was uh, was the time when it was widely you know displayed uh, you displayed right. yeah so now you're more likely to find it on amazon.com or any book retailer's website great spencer christian thanks for coming in doug schaefer thanks for having me my great. friend always a pleasure great seeing you All thanks It was great talking with Spencer again. You can check out his current wine show, Sips with Spencer, online, and you can get his book, You Bet Your Life, which is honest and tough and ultimately a real joy to read. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. As I said earlier, he's a pioneer in wine who used his platform on television and his natural enthusiasm to help millions of people learn to love wine as much as he did. If you enjoy the taste, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes, as that helps other people find the podcast. Anytime you want to reach us, just send an email to podcast at schafervineyards.com. I'd love to hear your feedback and ideas about the show. We'll see you next time.